Welcome to the Secret Lair Drive-In with your hosts, D-Dub and Stratosphere. The Secret Lair Drive-In is dedicated to bringing you the finest in B-movie entertainment news and reviews. And now, on with the show. Lights out. And now, the movies, folks. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Secret Lair Drive-In Podcast. If you're a regular listener to this show, you realize something is different. D-Dub and Strat are not here. My name is Joe Iden, and I've got D-Dub and Strat locked up in my basement watching a continuous loop of the first 15 minutes of Manos, The Hands of Fate, and I'm not letting them out until I get my say. If you've ever seen Manos, The Hands of Fate, you'll know what kind of torture I'm talking about. No, no, that's not true. Basically, D.W. and Strat are extremely busy, and their schedules don't allow them a lot of time to sit down and record a podcast. Um, Nothing bad. Everything's good. It's just that they're really busy. So I volunteered to step in and try to record a podcast, which I've never done before. So with the use of several notes and technology that I don't understand, I'm going to try and get this podcast out. Okay, I want to talk about a movie that has been near and dear to my heart since the first time I've ever seen it. The 1976 Dino De Laurentiis spectacular remake of King Kong. I kind of have an ulterior motive here because a while back I was listening to the other podcast that they do, Geeks Explain It All, and um, I heard Stratosphere kind of knock this film, you know, and... I took great offense to that, because I love this film. Around that same time, I happened to be home on a Saturday afternoon. Nobody was home. I was doing stuff around the house. And Turner Classic ran the original 33 Kong. And I watched it. And it was on a Saturday afternoon, like I said. And if you're familiar with Turner Classic, I think the guy's name is Ben Mankiewicz. He comes on and kind of introduces the beginning of the movie and then the end of the movie. Well, at the end of the movie, he came on. I happened to catch him say... uh, that uh, King Kong had been remade twice over the years, you know, once in 2005, uh, special effects extravaganza by Peter Jackson. And then he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, and before that in 1976 by Dino De Laurentiis, and he went on to say how that version should be avoided at all costs. And again, he took great offense. Like, wait a minute, what is wrong with this film? And we're going to try and let you know what I think about it and why I like it so much and how I think it's gotten a real bad rap over the years. All right, before we get into it, I almost forgot I want to throw out the contact information. Uh, 
questions, comments, criticisms, whatever, secretlairpodcast at gmail.com, secretlairpodcast at gmail.com. Post your questions and comments. I do all the time, and uh, they actually do read them all. Also, you can subscribe to them on iTunes, and if you do, go ahead and give them a review, because those reviews really do help out. Um, and to be quite honest, now that I think of it, I'm not even sure if I've ever submitted an iTunes review. So as soon as I'm done with this reporting, I'm going to go check that out make sure I did. Anyway, let's talk 76 King Kong. The film opened on uh, December 17th, 1976, and uh, it uh, was a highly anticipated film. It was it was it was advertised like crazy. I mean, if you've all seen that poster of him on the World Trade Center, I mean, my God, I remember you couldn't swing a dead cat without running into that poster in 1976 and early 77. I actually saw it three times in the theaters. I was 10 years old, and I want to say I saw it like the first time it was right after Christmas, like December 27th, and then I saw it twice again in early mid January. So I actually saw it three times in the theaters. Uh, of course, the the it is a updated retelling, and a lot of stuff was changed. Uh, we'll get into some of the um, some of the facts about it. It was um, the third highest grossing film in 1976. See, it counts as 1976. It opened in 76, even though it was only like two weeks before the end of the year. It was the third highest grossing film in 76, behind Rocky and A Star Is Born. The budget was 24 million. It brought in. Okay, this is before any kind of home video days or anything like that. It brought in, um, it was, yeah, $24 million. It brought in $6.9 million in the first three days. And I have a theory about that, which I'll mention later. Uh, the total revenue was $90 million. Okay, the misconception is that this film was a flop. It was not a flop. Adjusted for inflation, you're talking $99 million budget and a $376 million return. That is by no means a flop. Okay, this movie made a ton of coin. This, there was a lot of high-end Hollywood guys working on this film. Of course, we had the director, John Gullerman. He had done um, The Towering Inferno, and he, was, he had done a lot of work for uh, Dino De Laurentiis. We have um, John Barry, who did the score. Uh, one of the best scores to come out of the 70s, I think. Um, John Barry's score is terrific. Um, a lot of the production, the people behind the scenes, uh, the, the, the director of photography, the, the production manager, all this stuff, these were like, these guys were at the top of their field at the time. So De Laurentiis kind of got the best he could get to, to do this. Uh, the screenplay is by Lorenzo Semple Jr. And... Um, yeah, he got uh, we got a, the best he could get. Where he kind of went cheap was with the cast, uh, which is okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. A good actor is a good actor, no matter what you're paying them. And of course, we got Charles Grodin, our main cast: Charles Grodin, Jeff Bridges, and Jessica Lang in her first film. Before we get into why I like and don't like what I love about this movie and some of the things I don't like about it. Uh, I just want to talk about the cast really quick. Uh, I think Roden is terrific in this movie. I think he's even better than Kong, okay? And we'll get into the, 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 the Kong character in a little bit, but I love a character who everything he says in the movie, every line, 
He's wrong. He's constantly wrong. He's such a sleazeball, he's great in it. Jeff Bridges, eh, you know, uh, you know, pretty much anybody could have played the righteous hero. You know what I mean? That, he's not, um, he's kind of, I wouldn't say a disposable character. I think he does a good job. <coughs> but I think, um, you know, he's okay. He's a good hero type. Of course, he's, uh, you know, Lloyd Bridges' son. And he's gone on to have a stellar career, okay? And in my opinion, his best performance, believe it or not, is the remake of True Grit. I think he's terrific in it. Of course, Groden, again, went on to bigger and better things. I believe he's a um, talk show host, political commentary, things like that. Then we have Jessica Lange. Okay, this was her first film. <coughs> Excuse me. This is her first film. She does not have her acting chops at all in this film. If there's one weak spot in the acting in the film, it's probably her, okay? But that's okay. In my opinion, that's okay because it makes up for it in a lot of other ways, and we'll talk about later on. The production schedule on this film was tight. I mean, they got this out Christmas time of 76, and if I'm not mistaken, and you can check me on this, I think they started filming principal photography in like early 76, late 75, before the script was finished. There's a lot of backstory here because there was a bit of a conflict going on between Paramount, who actually made the movie with uh, um, De Laurentiis, and Universal. And the story goes, and I'm going to be real quick about this, they both had the idea at the same time. They both wanted to do it. Universal wanted to do a more direct remake. And it, there was a lot of back and forth. It actually ended up going to court. But from what I've been able to glean is Unipromise and a handshake from RKO, who owned the character of Kong. De Laurentiis had a signed contract. And I think that's what it came down to. It also, what, another thing it came down to is who got into production first. Paramount got into production first. Okay? So now, there's a lot more back and forth going on with uh, Universal and Paramount, but the fact of the matter is they both wanted to make it at the same time. Paramount won. Universal scrapped their project, because there was even talk about actually Universal going ahead and making their own at the same time. But obviously that didn't happen. Okay, uh, This was not the first time it was talked about remaking King Kong. Hammer Films out of England, they wanted to do it, I want to say about six or ten years before this. They wanted to do it in the late 60s, early 70s. They tried to secure the rights to King Kong to remake it uh, at Hammer Studios. And boy, that would have been interesting. So anyway, Paramount made the movie. And, um, well, the rest is history, if that's what you want to call it. But, uh, like I said, the production schedule on this thing was really tight. They knew they couldn't use stop motion. It's just too time-consuming. It's too expensive. So what did they decide to do? Well, they decided to take a cue from Toho and do a man in suit. But this would be the most sophisticated suit ever made for any movie. Okay? There is, again, a lot of backstory back and forth about um, the, the, the effects of Kong. Okay? Uh, De Laurentiis wanted to bring in Carlo Rimbaldi, who he had worked with before. And he also brought in a new guy, well, not really a new guy, but a younger guy, uh, Rick Baker. 
And, f- again, from what I managed, they both did designs. They ended up going with Baker's. And Baker got the idea, which is a brilliant idea. Okay, they had one suit. And, like, again, this wasn't just a suit. It was an undersuit with muscle tone and everything, and then the fur suit that went over it. But Baker got the brilliant idea of having, I think it was five or six or seven different heads, masks, if you will. And he would wear these things, and there would be hydraulic cables and electronic stuff coming out the back of the head, going down the suit off camera. And they would be nip- manipulated offhand, and, and based on the whatever mask he had on, that mask would be able to emote different emotions and facial expressions and stuff. That's brilliant, man. That is forward thinking in this film. Rimbaldi went ahead and, again, I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. He was made the, the giant hands and the, uh, the 40 or 50 foot giant Kong robot because De Laurentiis promised that we were going to see a giant robot Kong in this film. And, well, we'll talk about that when we get to it. But anyway, um, the, the, the effects for Kong were basically a man in suit. And when I say man in suit, this is not just, like I said, it, this is a very sophisticated piece of special effects, okay? I personally think it's one of the best suits ever made for a movie, okay? Maybe even to this day, because we really don't get a lot of man in suit action going on in the movies these days. But in 1976, this stuff was state of the art the way they did this. Uh, I want to talk real quick about some of the other stuff, um that went on in this film, uh, there is a lot of location shooting in this film. Uh, New York, uh, L.A., Hawaii, Kong's Island scenes were all filmed in Hawaii. So this, for as tight as this production was, for them to be traveling all over, and then they ha- I think they, were, they filmed some of the um, stuff on the boat, uh, in like around Catalina Island or something like that, if I remember. But um, the point is that, that this was a tight production schedule, and to get the kind of quality that they got based on their time frame, and they were able to get it out before Christmas, is astounding. Okay, and if you know anything about Hollywood and making movies and all that stuff, it's amazing that any movie gets made. Okay, something like this is even more amazing. So they were able to get this out in in a way that that I don't know if it could be done today. If you took the same technology and everything, I don't know if you could do that today. But Dio De Laurentiis did it. I remember walking into the theaters in 1976, the first time I saw it, and the opening shots came up, and I'm thinking to myself at 10 years old, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's this? An oil expedition? Where's the movie crew? Where's Carl Denham? Where's Ann Darrell? What, what, this is, I, I actually remember asking my uncle, who took me the first time, I said, is, is this the right movie? Is this King Kong? He had already seen it the day or two before. And he said, yeah, yeah this is it. Then, of course, the credits come up, you know. But the way this story was updated was perfect, okay? It, you know, we had an energy crisis going on. Gas was starting to go through the roof. To, have, to update the story, them going to the island looking for the oil, was brilliant. It was terrific. The, you know, you can update a lot of remakes, okay? But this one was done intelligently, okay? And that's why I think 
that this film is a lot more adult than just about any other King Kong film, including Peter Jackson's. <clears throat> yes, there's a lot of goofy stuff going on in here. I'll point out a couple of them, but this this has a very and the actors played it seriously. This this was um, they they took it seriously. Nobody was making fun of this movie when they were making it. One of the things that helps with that is two things, in my opinion, is um, the score, the score by John Barry. And if you're not familiar with John Barry, he had scored like 11 James Bond films, and he has a whole laundry list of credits, and sadly he's no longer with us, but uh, yeah, his score in this movie gives it a adult feel. Uh, 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 well, the score itself, is, it's, a, it's a romantic, sweeping, epic score. Just listen to the score while the credits are rolling in the beginning. And one cue in particular comes out to me um, is when they're scrolling through the actors, Charles Grodin, Jeff Bridges. Then it says, introducing Jessica Lange. The music cue on that, it, it's like, again, sweeping, romantic, you know what I mean? And it gives you the sense that you're about to sit through an epic. You're about to sit through something that you haven't seen before. The score in this film make it... It, almost better than it deserves, and why I think this, the score for this film is one of the best to come out of the 70s. Listen to the score of this film the next time you you, uh, you, you watch the movie. There's some great cues in this film. Uh, the Glade scene, when Kong is... They wake up the next morning, and, and, and he's um, basically checking Duan out, and there's a part where she runs and falls in mud. He goes after her, picks her up, and she lifts her up, and she screams, Help me! And as she screams to help me, they, they kind of they, they fade out on it, and they bring in the music cue, and it shows the guys trekking through the jungle looking for them. Uh, that is a great cue. I love that that musical cue right there from the, the, the transition of those two scenes. Okay. Uh, another thing, another point in the movie that gives that that the, the film gives it that epic feel is later on when they're in New York, Jack runs out and he looks up. At, I believe it's the World Trade Center, and the full moon in the background. And the, 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 the scene dissolves into the same scene when he was on the island looking up at the two mountains with the, with the, uh, the moon in the background. And the, 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 film's, the, the, the cue there, the musical cue there, is just terrific. Because you get a sense of, look how far we've come in this epic. Okay? And I, I, that's another cue that I really, really like. But yes, the music in this film... It really, really adds to it. It was the first time I ever realized how much, and sitting in the theater at 10 years old, the, probably the second or third time I saw it, not so much the first time, but realizing how much I loved the music in this film. You know, that, that bum, 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 bum. I love that musical cue right there. That, they use that a lot in the oil tanker scene when, he's, um, when Kong is in the oil tanker. But uh, yeah, the, the John Barry score in this is terrific. Uh, it's probably better than the film deserves, but, you know, it's it's really good. I really love it. Uh, I mentioned the suit before we talked about the suit. Okay, I think they were right to go with the man in a suit. Okay, I think, I think they were right to do it if they were going to drop the coin down on a proper suit, proper effects, and, and they did, and they did. Like I said, this suit was a very sophisticated effect, that Baker had to uh, 
to go through. The voice, by the way, of Kong, his roar was done by Peter Cullen. Okay, he's the voice of Optimus Prime, and he had a really hard time doing those roars to the point where his voice was, his throat was bleeding, his voice was just gone. But yeah, he did most of the roars, and then of course they mixed them up a little bit. But um, the suit is good. The suit has its flaws. Um, I mentioned the, the glade scene. In the glade scene, there's a scene where Kong rears his head back and roars, and if you look really close, you can see Rick Baker's teeth in the back of that mouth. Okay, uh, he wore thick contact lenses that he couldn't see through. And I've heard it been said by people I've talked to that he was just a little too human. And yeah, I can't argue with that. He was a little bit too human. But see, I kind of think that's what I like about that. Because you're talking about, as Jack says, a rare and unique breed of animal. A new and unique breed of animal. Okay, so why not? Why can't he be a little bit more unapish, a little bit more human? Unlike Peter Jackson's, where he went the total 100% ape look. And that's fine. But in this one, there is that human element in there. And because of the, the, of the performance of Baker, it was Baker and another stunt guy, I think, who did some of the long shots, but the close-ups were pretty much all Baker. I, I, think, I think it worked very, very well. I mean, take a look at, at the suit. Take a, look, take a real critical look at the way the mask is, the way the suit is. This was not cheap, okay? This is not the Toho King Kong, you know, where I basically just threw a guy in a suit with a mask on. This was sophisticated, high-tech for 1976. And I think if they were going to go man in suit, they did everything they could. They pumped as much money into that effect as they possibly could, and the miniatures. With all that said, Rick Baker did not like the way Kong looked. He didn't care for it. He There was stuff he wanted to do. He had gotten into arguments with Carlo Rombaldo, who also helped make the suit and some of the masks. And he got into all kinds of problems with that. But he does go on to say, and I've read in an interview, that the cinematographer, the production designer, was a guy named... Um, I think the cinematographer was Richard Klein. He credits Richard Klein for making Kong look so good. Okay, take a look at this movie. A ton of it is shot at night, okay? Island scenes, New York scenes, a ton of it is shot at night. And you're talking about photographing or, uh, a, um, a guy in basically dark brown and a black ape suit filming it at night, okay? Now, I don't know anything about photography, about movie making or anything like that, but I can't imagine that's easy, okay? That's got to be hard. It's real easy to wash out blacks in photography and... and, and in filming, okay? I've seen a ton of movies that have done it. So, for them to, for uh, uh, Richard Klein to light that movie the way he did, rear, rear lighting, um, um, lighting it from below, stuff like that, you never lose Kong in the film. You never lose him in the night shots and stuff like that. I know this seems sounds like it's something that you don't really think about, but when I read that article about Baker, about saying how the reason Kong looked so good was because of the way uh, Richard Klein uh, lit it and photographed it, that he gives all the credit to him for making Kong look so good. Back, you know, this is years ago, I went back and looked at the way, and he's right. The lighting in this thing is really, really good. The lighting in the, you know, the sequences of the Kong, because, again, you don't lose Kong in the shots. I really like that about him. Uh couple other things. Uh, Carlo Rombaldi also built a set of giant hands. 
Yeah, let's talk about those giant hands. <clears throat> this is another factor, along with the score and the lighting, that I think make this film better than it is. These things worked, and they worked well, okay? If you take a look at the film, you can see there's a lot of movement in these hands that Carlo Rimbaldi, and it is amazing they came out as well as they did, because Rimbaldi didn't speak a lot of English, okay? His, his crew that were manipulating these hands with, uh, you know, levers and, you know, stuff like that off camera, none of those guys spoke English. So Gullerman had to give his direction through an interpreter to make these hands work. And they did. They worked terrific. There is several shots in this film that the giant hands work almost like another character. And if those hands didn't work, this film wouldn't work. Okay? I think the hands worked perfectly. Uh, I love the giant hands in this movie. Uh, the right one was a little bit more articulated and be able to move than the left one. Uh, but they both worked, and they were able to pick Jessica Lang up. They were able to, you know, manipulate. You name it, those hands worked. Now, they were also, could be dangerous. Uh, Jessica Lang received a couple of pinched nerves from the the finger hitting her a couple of t times too hard. And there was concern about when he grasped her that the hands would crush her. Uh, they put in, like, safety bolts or something like that. But the fact is that these things worked, and they worked well, okay? And if you look at the movie, you can you know what I'm talking about. I also love the scene where actually they capture Kong, and he's in the pit with the chloroform, and that right hand raises up and kind of moves back and forth. It's a little stiff, a little electronic-looking, uh, and then comes back down really slow. These hands worked, and they worked really well. Uh, let's talk about Jessica Lange real quick. Uh, again, she, she never acting chops at the time. Uh, she's got the whole bubblehead thing going on really good. Um, you know, there's been criticisms about a lot of the scenes that she did with Kong, but especially early in the film, and from what I've read, she was supposed to be, like, hysterical. She didn't know what she was saying. She didn't know what she was talking about. Eh, okay, maybe. I said she's probably the weakest acting point in the film, and I stand by that. But I wouldn't want it to change. Because I'm going to say something right now. I think Jessica Lange is the sexiest leading lady any Kong ever had. Okay? Got your Fay Rays. Got your uh, Naomi Watts. You know, got your Mia Hama. Uh, got your Linda Millers. All good-looking ladies. But the fact is that Jessica Lang had a whole sexy thing going on here that I loved. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and she was able to, to pull it off just enough, just enough to make the movie work. Yeah, she could have been a lot better in it. Her acting, again, she didn't have her chops. And of course, we all know she went on to have a stellar career, Academy Award-winning actress. So my understanding is she went back to acting school after this film, thank God. But, you know, I think she's okay in this film because she's got the whole sex appeal thing going on, and she's gorgeous to look at. You know, she really is. And I think that kind of offsets her ability to not really, to not, uh, her not acting, her ability to not act very well. Uh, over the years, this has not bothered me, okay? I, I, I like Jessica Lange in it. I'm not nuts about her. Again, my favorite character in the film was Charles Grodin. 
Okay, let's talk about some of the meat and potatoes of this movie. Some of the criticisms I've heard over the years. Some of the th- stuff that at first bothered me, but uh, over the years I've kind of mellowed out on it. And I've kind of said, the big thing is the lack of other dinosaurs in the film. All right, let's think about this for a second. They had enough trouble with the Kong suit and the one creature he did fight, the giant snake, which really didn't work, okay? They had enough trouble with... Can you imagine the trouble they would have had if they had other dinosaurs in the film? And let, and if they did have other dinosaurs in the film, what would they have looked like? You know what I mean? Again, this is 1976. They probably would have come off looking like something out of The Last Dinosaur, and I'm so glad they didn't do that, because that would have ruined it. That would have cheapened it. That would have turned it into... You know, a Hollywood version of a Toho movie. As much as I love Toho movies, I wouldn't have wanted to see that. So the lack of other dinosaurs in the film probably helps it. Because if there were other dinosaurs in the film, it would make Kong less unique. Okay? Imagine the last of the giant creatures, the last of the giant monsters, creatures, whatever you want to call it. He's the last one. Okay, to put other dinosaurs in the film would kind of take away from that, take away from that, 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 that myth about him, that, 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 that honest of him. You know what I mean? So the lack of other dinosaurs in the film for him to fight did not bother me. Okay, the snake, you know, it was okay. It, it didn't work though. They had a hell of a time with the snake. Okay, uh, at one point it was suggested that they build another suit, put a midget in it, and get a real boa constrictor. You know, it's like this is. This is what they were they were scrambling to, to, to get this scene done. And yeah, if you look at the film, you could see the flaws in the snake. But you know what? That's okay. I like it. I don't mind the snake scene. Okay? Uh, it's not an exciting scene by any means, but you know, at least it was something. Okay? There was also talk of, of before they filmed that scene, there was going to be a scene where uh, the snake comes... I don't know if it was going to be the same snake or a different snake, whatever... It was as they were crossing the log. The snake was actually going to chase them onto the log. They were there was actually talk about that, and from what I understand, they actually moved the prop to another soundstage to get the shot and everything like that. But it just it wasn't working. They were running out of time. They had to get the snake scene with Kong shot, so they scrapped that scene. And the actual snake prop had to be cut up, and it was used in tight shots to get the fight. Uh, if you could call it a fight, I don't know. It's kind of a goofy, uh, goofy scene. I don't mind it that much, but uh, maybe not goofy, but it, it, it's just not, you know. At no point in the film, from the first time I saw it, did I think that Kong was in danger of getting killed by this giant snake. That was, you know, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, some of the goofy aspects in this film to this day still bother me. One of the big things is the way Kong smiles. The, um,. Waterfall scene, for instance, when he's holding Dwan underneath the waterfall and he's like, smiling, and then when he has him up at the top of the mountain in his lair and he's taking her clothes off and he's smiling, I still cringe to that day. I, I just think if there was a time to make him less human, that would have been it. Okay, the smiling—they I mean, should have scrapped the, the smiling mask. They should have thrown out. Okay, they should have got rid of it. But I think that's one of the things that camps this movie up is the fact that Kong is so human that he actually smiles. And I really like, don't like that. Most of the time through the film, I think Kong is terrific. I think the performance is terrific. Again, the tone of this film is epic and adult. 
And I stand by that. I, I think this is an epic. Is it a perfect film? No, it's not perfect. You know what I mean? But it is epic and it is, and it is an adult themed film. And again, I mentioned the special effects. Let's talk about other special effects other than Kong. Uh, the mat work. There is some terrific mat paintings in this film. One is when they come up in the beginning of the film when they're on the island, they come up over the hill. And Wilson looks up and he goes, holy mother, and they show the wall. That's a matte painting, and I think it's a really good one. I, I, you know what? I, for years, I knew who can't think of the name offhand. Another good one is when they're crossing the log, and when Kong is shaking them off the log, the, the, the scene of them falling, that's a matte painting, too. That's, that's a really good matte painting, too. It, it, is, it is, you know tied into the live action stuff pretty good you know it's pretty good but um that is a very good scene as well a uh, very good matte painting in that scene as well uh okay another one of the main special effects in this film that was built by carlo Rimbaldi is the 50 foot kong robot as i mentioned this movie was heavily publicized there were time magazine people magazine Los Angeles Times, New York Times, they all ran stories about this film before it even opened, okay? And in a lot of these interviews and a lot of these stories, uh, De Laurentiis promised a giant robot Kong. They showed pictures of it being made. They showed pictures of it. It came right down to it, this thing didn't work. <laughs> it stayed on scene, I want to say, six or eight seconds. The problem was it, it didn't move. The head was supposed to move back and forth. The mouth was supposed to open. The eyes were supposed to move. The fingers and the hands and the arms were supposed to go up and down. It was supposed to breathe, okay? The chest was supposed to heave it. None of this worked. The only thing they could actually get it to do was the mouth to move up and down a little bit. I think the head moved back and forth a little bit. And the arms went up and down at the shoulders. That's it. That's all they could get out of this thing. Just didn't work. And I mentioned it was on scene for like six or eight seconds, you know. And another major problem was it didn't look like the Baker masks, okay. It didn't look anything like it. And if you want to see what I'm talking about, around this time, Famous Monsters of Filmland ran a cover story on the new King Kong. And on that cover is one of the, you know, they always did those famous paintings of all the monsters, is a shot of a painting of King Kong. And the painting was taken from a photograph of the 50-foot robot, and it looks nothing like the Baker head. It looks nothing like King Kong. It looks like it looks like Bigfoot. Okay, it just didn't work. The giant robot. If you look in the scene and when he's breaking out of the cage, if you look close and if you're quick enough, you can actually see where it's actually held up by these big scaffolding and everything behind him. And this thing was a bomb. I think it cost a couple million bucks to make, and it just bombed. Or did it? There's another way of looking at this, okay? Because of the heavily, heavily publicized uh, work that this film had, okay? And Dino, Dino DeLaurent is talking about this giant robot they were building. People wanted to see this. I wanted to see it. This is one of the things that drove people into the theaters. This is one of the things people wanted to see in this movie. They wanted to see this giant robot. And at $6.9 million in the first three days, a lot of people went in to see King Kong, and I'm guessing a lot of them wanted to see this giant robot they've been hearing about. That's one of the things that drove people into the theaters. That's one of the things that... that made this movie successful. So if you look at it like that, like almost a piece of advertising, advertisement, uh, 
the giant robot was a complete success. Now, as a prop for the film, which was, by the way, the most expensive prop ever built for a film up until then, uh, if you look at it as a piece of advertising, it was a, a huge success. Prop for a movie? Complete flop. But it's my guess is that one of the reasons people went in to see this movie was to see this Robot Kong that they were promised. That added to the success of this movie. Anyway, that's how I always felt about it. Whether or not it made it better or worse, a better movie, I don't know if the giant robot made it a better movie. Okay? I don't think it did. But it did make it more successful. Okay? There's another aspect of this film that completely took me by surprise when I was 10 years old. Okay? Now, if you remember the 33 Kong, okay, that character in that film, he was a monster. Okay, yes, we feel bad for him. Yes, we empathize when he gets killed. Yes, we, we, we care about the character in the 33. Okay? But all through that movie, all Anne Darrow wants to do is get away from Kong. That's all she wants to do. In fact, when Kong finally climbs the Empire State Building at the end, oh, they're very quick to get the airplanes to shoot him down. They're very quick to do that. And there's the fact there's even a, a scene in the in the movie uh, in New York where Anne even says to Jack, uh, not Anne, um, yeah, Anne Darrell says to Jack, uh, it's just like that horrible day on the island. Okay, she wanted to get away from this creature. Okay, that is completely spun on its head in this version. Okay, and this took me by surprise, which may not be aware of because with the Jackson film. They kind of did the same thing. As I'm watching this film, I'm realizing, especially in the New York scenes, Dwan is trying to save Kong. She's trying to stop him. He's on top of the World Trade Center. She said, no, don't let me down. Don't put me down. Pick me up. Pick me up. And he's pushing her away because he doesn't want her to get it. That took me, took me by surprise. She was trying to save him. She did not want him hurt. Neither did Jack. Okay. There's even a scene on the ship when they're coming back, and she says, you know... She says, you know, he risked his life for me, and, and you know, he's, uh, how can I, how can I, you know, I feel bad for this, it was taken away from his home and everything like that, and, and it, it was stuff like this that took me by surprise. It, it, he, she was not trying to constantly get away from him. You know, there's a point where she even says there's like a curse on all of us, you know. These are, uh, you know, adult more adult than the original kind of aspects that they put into this film. And it's one of the reasons why I like it so much. That really hurt trying to save him really took me by surprise. You take that in the fact that we had a real guy in that suit. He was able to, through his eyes and the, the, the facial expressions on the mask, Baker was able to emit emotion. He was able to, you were able to connect with him better than the 33. You were able to, to, have empathy more for this version than I think the 33. And when he dies at the end, and Dwan is crying her eyes out, you can hear the heartbeat, I think the impact of this Kong being killed, this Kong's tragic fate, hits us more than the 33 version. Okay? That is one thing that completely took me by surprise, that you realize in this movie that Kong is not the monster. If anybody's the monster, it's Fred Wilson, uh, Charles Rhodes' character. 
Kong's not the monster. Kong is the leading man. He is the leading man. And when our leading man dies, it hits us more than it did in the 33 one. Okay? I mentioned a lot of stuff that... Um, I mentioned um, a lot of stuff that I like about the film. Overall, okay, the reason I like this movie, because I think for the time, I think the special effects were top-notch. They, 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 really, they really went out of their way, even to the point where you might not be aware of it. Um, let's say the waterfall scene. I'll say that. When he's picking up and, and he's smiling underneath the waterfall, like I mentioned. But take a look at that scene, okay? You got Jessica Lange in the big hand underneath the waterfall. You got Rick Baker in the suit behind her. And behind him, you have another shot of all these waterfalls. You got three different shots in one. That's just one example in this film. And it all kind of seems together almost perfect, you know? The, the effects of this film are another, you know, the, the, those effects you don't notice, those, those background, um, uh, I don't know, they used to call it blue screen work or something. I think they used blue screen. I think the blue screen work in this film is terrific. It works, okay? It's, it's flawed in places. Again, it's not, you know, this is 1976. It's, you know, it's better than just about anything else that's come before it. Now, I know some of the stuff that Disney did back in the day is really good, but I think the blue screen work on this film is really good, and it's evident in a couple of scenes. may not be perfect, but it is really good. I think overall the reason I like this movie so much is because of the updated adult handling of the movie. It is a sweeping romantic tale that is backed up by a sweeping romantic soundtrack. It is a, for the most part, for the most part, a well-acted film. These actors took it seriously. Nobody, like I mentioned, nobody was making fun of it. This movie was important to me because, because of the hype when I finally did get to see it, after I saw it the first time, this was the film for me. I wanted to know how they did that. I wanted to know what this actor has done before. I wanted to know who directed it. I wanted to know who is the guy that wrote the music. You know, is, is, is his music as good in other movies as it is in this? This was the film that kept asking, that, that had me asking, how they did that, and who did it. And I wanted to find out about it. And it took a long time to find out about this stuff because, again, we're talking 1976. No internet back then. So finding backstories on a lot of this stuff wasn't easy. You know, I, I, I had to you know, basically read magazines, all current stuff, you know what I mean? I had to get every magazine I could find on it, everything I could. And over the years, you know, obviously there's been a lot written about these movies and things like that, and I've been able to learn more. This was the first soundtrack I ever bought. I bought the album for the soundtrack. You know, I'm talking like 10 years old, man, 11 years old. I wanted this soundtrack. I loved it. If you take anything away from this recording when you're listening to it, I would tell you to, as you decide, if you decide to watch the film again, as you're watching it, pay attention to the score. Pay attention to, to the... Um, the, the, some of the effects. This movie is epic, okay? It's epic. Is it, you know, the best thing to come out of it? No, absolutely not. It's not the best thing to come out of the 70s. It's got its flaws. But this, 
this has an epic, this movie has an epic feel, an epic tone in it, an adult tone in it. And I think that's one of the things that, that really I picked up on when I was a kid, that this was a giant monster in the real world. You know what I mean? This was a giant monster in the real world. It was taken seriously. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, I love this thing so much. A couple of facts about it real quick. Um, De Laurentiis approached uh, Mario Bava to come in, and I don't know if he was going to direct it or do the special effects, but, uh, yeah, he wanted Mario Bava on this film. Um, Bava at the time did not want to leave. He didn't speak English. I think he was intimidated by that. He didn't want to spend so much time away from uh, away from home because they were filming in the, in the states, you know. Uh, Meryl Streep auditioned for the part of Dwan. Um, another actor, uh, she was a mod, I think it was Britt Eklund, I think, was uh, approached to play Dawn. So she was turned down too, or she turned it down based on the script. Uh, there was a rumor that Barbara Streisand was considered for this film, but I don't think it was this one. I think it was the Universal version that I mentioned earlier. I think that's the one that she uh, that she was um, considered for. I know Peter Falk was actually hired for, by Universal to play Carl Denham in their version. But anyway, uh, I hope I made some kind of a case for this film. I hope at least you'll go in and give it a second shot, shot and don't just fluff it off like Stratosphere did. <laughs> you know, I, hope, I hope you give it a second look because this is one of my favorite giant monster movies. Well, it's one of my favorite American giant monster movies. Uh, it's a lot of fun to watch. It's not dull. It's not boring. It it, it holds up pretty well. I, I like the way it held up. Uh, I just watched it last night before I uh, did this recording. And, uh, yeah, this this is worth... This is worth... It's very, at the very least, it's worth talking about in a podcast. Well, I've rambled on far enough, I think. I want to um, just mention real quick, if you're at all interested in King Kong, there's a terrific, all-encompassing book about King Kong called uh, King Kong, History of a Movie Icon from Fay Ray to Peter Jackson by Ray Morton. There is everything is in this. The 33 Kong, the, the Toho Kong, this Kong, the... The sequel, yeah, there was a sequel to this film. You want to knock a Kong movie? That's the movie to knock, okay? Because that is hard to get through, man. Uh, and it, uh, that book, by the way, also covers um, uh, the Peter Jackson. It's a nice, thick book. And um, also, if you're interested in the 33 Kong, there's a wonderful book out there. I think it just got republished recently called The Making of King Kong by... Um, Goldner and Turner, who guys who actually worked on the original 33. The book's a bit dated, but if you're interested, it's there. Anyway, uh, I hope I've given you reason to go in and maybe give this film a second look. I want to thank D-Dub and Stratosphere for letting me ramble on unsupervised, unabridged, unedited. And I really appreciate it. Um... First time I've ever done a full recording on a podcast by myself. I hope, I hope I did well, and I hope you enjoyed it. And like I said, I mentioned before, any comments, questions, criticisms, Secret Lair Podcast at gmail dot com. All right, folks, that'll be it for me. I'm going to turn the reins back over to D Dub and Strat. I'm sure they'll be here next time with another great movie. 
And I wish I could tell you what the next subject is, what the next movie is, but I don't know. So uh, this is Joe Iden signing off saying thanks for listening and take care. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater.